Welcome to Global Volumes, the podcast that lies at the intersection of storytelling, global health, and personal development. I'm your host, Lisa Gashara, and from developing the world within you to understanding the world around you, thank you for turning up the volume to today's volume. Welcome to another episode of Global Volumes. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Michael Merson, who is many things, but above all else, I would say a visionary in that he shares his insight, both retrospective and prospective on past, present and future global health challenges and his passion within academia to equip young minds. So. Thank you for tuning in to this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Dr. Morrison. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, Would you like to just start off by introducing yourself, um, who you are, and where you're currently at? Uh, Sure. Um, uh, Nice to be with you. Um, I'm Michael Merson. Um, I am a professor of global health um, at the uh, Duke University Global Health Institute, Uh, And I'm currently speaking to you uh, from New York City, where I currently live. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. I wanted to ask you about where your journey all began before um, going to med school and being a part of a bunch of global health um, issues. Where did it all start before that? Well, before that, I um, was born in, uh, in Brooklyn, in New York City, lived there for the first five years of my life. And uh, then my family moved out to um, Long Island uh, where I spent the rest of my youth. Um, After that, I went to uh, college, uh, Amherst College in in Massachusetts and then on to medical school. Did you always know know that you wanted to go to med school? Always, uh, it's a long time, but I, I would say um, I was very influenced by my grandfather, um, who was a uh, cardiologist and a wonderful human being, uh, who I spent a lot of time with when I lived in Brooklyn uh, as, a, uh, as a young child. I remember his office very well uh, and how much he cared about his, his patients. Uh, I think that had a, a big influence on me. Wow. And then where did your journey go off to after med school? Well, after medical school, I finished my um, training, most of it anyway, in, in, um, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. Um, and then uh, this was during the Vietnam War. And um, this was a period when all of us who were in medical training got drafted. Uh, this was compulsory at the time. It's not now. Uh, and I was fortunate that I was assigned to go to the Center for Disease Control um, in the U.S. Public Health Service and the Commission Corps uh, in Atlanta. And so that's where I was assigned. And I joined their, um, the Epidemiology Intelligence Service. It's a funny name. That's the term EIS. And um, learned that epidemiology and work primarily in the field of diarrheal diseases Mm -hmm. uh, and spent uh, three years there. Um, And then uh, after that, um, finished my training another year or two in infectious diseases. Then um, as um, continuing with 
the CDC in Atlanta, where I was stationed, uh, I was uh, took up an assignment in Bangladesh and I moved to Dhaka, uh, where I lived for two years, um, working for the Center for Disease Control at a place that was at that time called the Cholera Research Lab. It's now called the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research in Bangladesh. Wow, what was um, that experience like living in Bangladesh and working on that issue? It was very challenging um, and, and very rewarding. Um, the uh, opportunities there to treat hundreds of patients uh, every day, mostly with, with cholera and other serious uh, diarrheal illness. Also, it was a place where I could apply what I had learned in epidemiology uh, at CDC to do research um, on uh, the cause of diarrhea and diarrheal transmission uh, in, in Bangladesh, both in Dhaka, which was a big urban area, and Maklab, which is a big rural area where um, the, the center had a uh, research station. Uh, I used to go down there and spend a week's sort of time living on a houseboat um, in, in this village and um, doing the work there, both research and treating patients. After that, um, I moved to uh, Geneva. I was um, very surprisingly uh, recruited by the World Health Organization to come to Geneva uh, and help to start a new program centered around oral rehydration therapy, which was a, at that time, a rather new approach, life-saving approach uh, to treatment of diarrheal disease, including cholera in adults and in children. Up until then, most cases of diarrheal disease were treated intravenously. Mm. Uh, and that, that worked, but it created a lot of logistical challenges. And, um, in Bangladesh and in India um, in, in the 1970s, there was some very exciting research showing that uh, most children and adults with diarrhea, as long as they could drink, uh, were able to be treated orally. And that allowed us to extend uh, treatment into the homes, into communities, uh, and did not require the need for intravenous therapy. So I, I um, so the program I was recruited to start, help start in WHO was centered around reducing diarrheal mortality in children and adults. And we look back on that program about five years ago, a number of us, and, and in fact, that program reduced diarrheal mortality globally by about 90% over uh, about a 30 year period. So those were the early days and quite exciting, rewarding, and, um, and uh, challenging. Wow, that's, that's amazing. What advice would you have for people who are in beginning stages of an issue, being able to now look back on it 30 years later and see how successful that was? But how did you feel at the beginning and what would you advise people who are in similar situations? Well, not everybody's situation is the same, but um, what, I, what I tell students is follow your passion, uh, what, what really matters to you, uh, and, and be willing to try things that uh, maybe you haven't done before. Um, and uh, 
approach um, whatever you do uh, uh, with a, a great deal of uh, commitment um, and um, desire to do your best uh, to make a difference. Mm. Oh, thank you. And is there a particular instance or interaction that stands out to you um, either in Bangladesh or in Geneva that kind of solidified your work and your position? Um, it's, it's hard to pick one, one thing. I would say um, along the way, along my path, um, it was a few key people that I met uh, who were very inspirational um, and um, uh, helped to provide me the mentorship uh, that I, I needed uh, and the guidance that was very valuable in retrospect um, for my career path. Mm. Wow. Um, before talking about your work in academia, what was it like um, being in these piloting phases of um, an oral rehydration therapy program and like to founding DGHI, just um, how has that been for you just seeing these beginning stages occur? I think when uh, in general, when one is on the cutting edge of, 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 of any initiative, um, it's, it's very exciting and uh, one has to be strategic, uh, one has to be collaborative uh, and work with others, uh, be open to ideas uh, and at times uh, maybe things don't go the way you want. You have to pick up and move forward and, and um, have your eye on the ball. I think in the case of the oral rehydration program at WHO, we knew we had a technology that could really reduce mortality. Mm. Um, we had to take on the, uh, a lot of pediatricians who were very nervous about treating uh, children, particularly um, orally, because the feeling at the time was that the intestine was sick and it needed, you needed to rest the bowel, rest the intestine, no water and no food. It turns out that a child with diarrhea most of the bowel is fine and they can absorb fluid. They can even take food so they don't become malnourished mm -hmm. as a result of the diarrhea. And that was not well known at the time. In fact, that, to some people that was, didn't make any sense. And so we had to be patient. We had to do small studies to convince people that the approach we were using was safe and effective. Um, and, and we were fortunate that, that things worked out. Um, the, the field of global health, apropos your question of DGHI, um, here um, I was very fortunate uh, to uh, be on the opening days of that, uh, which in many ways uh, stems from the AIDS pandemic. The AIDS pandemic in the 1990s was a very transformative event, just like COVID is today. Um, we were faced with a different kind, but, a, but still a global pandemic, which touched many, many people in all countries, um, and really in, in many ways led to the birth of what we now call global health around, around uh, the 2000, early in this century. And I had been leading the AIDS program in WA, in the World Health Organization, uh, after I joined WHO, I, I spent the, the first uh, decade working in diarrheal disease 
and then was asked by the WHO leadership to take over the global program on AIDS. This was in 1990, which I did until 1995 when I left WHO to, to uh, join Yale University as a, its, it's a first dean of public health. Um, so I was on the forefront of the AIDS pandemic. We, we had about 500 people in WHO working in about 120 countries on the pandemic, and I was um, fortunate to be asked to lead that program. And as I've said, the AIDS pandemic and our experience there very much was the birth of global health. And, um, and so I was very fortunate to be involved in the early thinking about uh, global health in academia. Wow. And um, what has been the biggest positive um, or good surprise in seeing the transition of um, the AIDS pandemic from that time until where it is now? Well, I think with AIDS, we were very fortunate to, um, uh, in, in the late 1990s to have treatment. Um, it was a fatal disease and, until the discovery of antiretroviral drugs, which revolutionized uh, our approach to the disease. Um, initially, these drugs were only available in rich countries were very expensive and through a lot of activism uh, around human rights issues and access to drugs, these drugs, price of these drugs dropped dramatically and could be made available to, to, all, to all nations and to all people. Uh, this was in, in, the, in, in the name of social justice. Um, this was very much at the heart of the birth of global health. The, um, the field of global health, therefore, uh, has been based on very much on um, achieving equity around the world um, and achieving um, uh, the right of every individual to have access to uh, effective um, and, and safe um, health services for prevention and for care. Um, and so a lot of this, what we have really striven for in global health is derived from the early from our days and experience with AIDS. Another, another um, aspect that AIDS taught us was that um, approaching disease really uh, needed to be seen in a very broad way, that we needed to involve um, persons with many disciplines, uh, persons coming at um, uh, the, the uh, prevention and care with different perspectives, not just medicine, which of course is critical, nursing critical, but also we needed social scientists, um, we needed economists, we needed lawyers, uh, we needed a, a well-rounded, what we often call interdisciplinary approach mm -hmm. to global health, particularly when it comes to prevention and when it comes to dealing with what we call the, uh, the social and economic determinants of health. Yeah. So how did you decide to make the transition from working in global health to um, being an academic leader in global health and public health? Well, when I finished my 18 years in WHO, uh, one of my passions then was to come back to the States um, and help to be involved uh, in, in bringing the next generations forward in the field. Uh, there was enormous excitement about the field, uh, particularly among uh, young people. 
um, who uh, at that time uh, wanted more and more to uh, go into uh, public health, medicine as well, but, but in, in a broader sense, public health. Um, and uh, we're having an opportunity not just to do it in a domestic context, but to think globally. Uh, AIDS was a global pandemic, and that did push many people to think of uh, health in a global context. Mm. Um, we've seen this now again with, with COVID, mm. uh, which is uh, you know, clearly a, the most severe pandemic we've had in, in 100 years. Um, and and uh, that too has shown us the terribly um, valuable contribution of approaching uh, health problems in a global context. Right. What was your experience like at Yale and um, working in the public health department over there? Well, I had not been in an academic setting. Um, and so first year was challenging, um, learning how academic uh, governance works. Being a dean is um, it, its own set of issues. Uh, what, and, and, and learning anywhere how to work with faculty uh, and encourage faculty uh, to be what they want to be. And also dealing, of course, with all the administrative challenges that um, any uh, leadership position has in, in a university. Um, and uh, there I was very fortunate, though. I not only had a very talented faculty, uh, but I was able to spend some of my time running an international Focus center on AIDS. And I was able to keep up a lot of my interest and um, networks on AIDS um, through in an academic setting. So we did a lot of collaboration, including uh, research and training, educational work uh, with institutions in a number of countries mm-hmm. around the world. Um, and so it, for me, it was very enjoyable to uh, be working with faculty and students um, in building um, at the same time an AIDS center uh, that was focused on on global AIDS. You know, at the time in the U.S., um, in the 1990s, most of the AIDS, understandably, uh, focus was on the domestic situation with so many people dying. But once we had the new drugs, we were able to to expand our horizon and think in a, in a real global context. And so it was enjoyable to be part of that as well. Um, so my time at Yale was very satisfying. And then how did that shift into you being at Duke and um, founding this Global Health Institute? Well, what happened uh, as, as we moved on um, after the turn of the century, after 2000, more and more universities started to to build global health programs. For some, it was departments, for some, it was institutes, for some, it was centers. Um, There were, I would say, no more than five universities to start with. And and by, um, say, 2010, 2015, there were probably two, 300 universities doing something in global health. And uh, what happened to Duke was uh, the leadership at the time, uh, uh, both in the medical center and on the campus side, had made a commitment to make uh, Duke a more global university in a number of ways. Um, And one of those was to create a global health institute. 
um, there was an initially quite a substantial commitment of $30 million to get the Institute off the ground of university resources um, and to create an interdisciplinary institute uh, that reported equally to the chancellor of the health system and the provost. And uh, I was contacted and asked if I would be interested in applying. I applied and uh, for whatever reason, I was selected to, to uh, be the, the director. And uh, I came then to Duke in 2006 uh, to start the Institute. And it, um, and it was just uh, myself and uh, um, a woman, Tammy Sorrell at the time, who was uh, I, I was lucky to have as my first administrative uh, support. Uh, and she and I uh, had an office in the basement of Trent. And for the first six months, no one knew who we were. Um, we had to start up, we had to build the program um, and we were quite successful uh, in doing so very much for two reasons. One is that we had, uh, as I mentioned, the strong support of the leadership of the university, uh, but also enormous enthusiasm, uh, particularly among students. Mm -hmm. um, we, we didn't have a master's program then, but there was great interest in students from uh, around the university. And I would, I spent my first year, uh, actually first two years, meeting close to two, 200, maybe 300 faculty all over the campus. Uh, I had not been at Duke, just hearing their interest and seeing how we could bring some of them you know, into the Institute. So the first years were very formative, strategic. Um, and uh, by 2008, 2009, we were up and running. Um, and we're able to get a lot of activities started, including one of the first activities was the master's program. In the context of the Duke Global Health Institute, you are teaching a class next semester of the future of global health. And I wanted to ask you, where do you see global health coming um, these next few years as 2030 is approaching and we have these sustainable development goals and we are trying to fight this current pandemic, yeah. What does the future look like? Well, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know anyone knows what it's going to look like, but we do know we have some very important challenges to face mm -hmm. uh, that are going to impact on the future of global health. Um, you mentioned the pandemic, of course, that's at front and center right now. Um, how do we organize ourselves still better to confront the current pandemic, uh, where there are, I'm sure, still some surprises ahead. Um, and uh, what do we do about the next pandemic? Uh, and there's a lot of talk about changes in global governance, mm. new financing mechanisms around pandemics, so that we know that's going to happen. But of course, right next to it is climate change, which, as you know, is going to be discussed next week at COP26 in Glasgow. And that perhaps presents even a greater challenge in many ways, really uh, one that uh, if we don't deal with the implications and consequences of, of, of it are gonna be tremendous uh, on, on everyone. So that where that's going to take us is, is not known, but it's going to take some major changes in the way we think about our lives and we think about health and prevention, treatment and um, how we deal with um, the, the, all the challenges that, that global warming and, and the greenhouse gases 
present us. And there are other challenges as well. We, we still um, have not um, completely dealt with as we should have. Uh, maternal and child health is a big problem, particularly neonatal health, maternal health, nutrition needs. And of course, HTB and malaria still are problems. And how do we move forward and really um, achieve even the MDGs back in, which we never really come, came close to achieving that preceded the SDGs, uh, what we call the unfinished agenda. Right. And then overlaying all this, I think we have to be thinking much more um, and about the way in which people ob obtain knowledge about global health. Mm. We are, we're going through some major, major upheavals. Uh, the epidemiological transition, for example, more and more countries are becoming wealthier um, and uh, we're going to face uh, many more challenges around the, the non-communicable diseases in what we call low-income countries. Many of those will be um, uh, lower middle-income countries very soon, particularly the urban areas. Um, so that's going to be a real challenge, what I call the epidemiologic transition. And around that, you have the demographic transition, people living longer everywhere. And many societies around the world are not, particularly country, lower income countries, uh, don't have health systems that are prepared to deal adequately with the NCDs and with the aging population. So how do we come up with innovative ways um, to do that, particularly using some of the newer technologies that we have in front of us now? Uh, who doesn't have a, a mobile phone anywhere in the world? Um, so those are, that's another set of challenges. And then I would add one more, which is the whole social media um, uh, milieu which dominates our lives. Um, I personally will not look at Facebook because I see Facebook has done great harm to our health, but many people still do. And of course there's Instagram and TikTok and God knows what's on the horizon. And if you just think about how many people get their information today yeah. from social media, and we've not think at all, we've not thought at all in a, in a comprehensive way, uh, those of us in global health, how better to use social media uh, to achieve what we want to achieve. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a real challenge for the future. So that's just some of the issues that uh, I think we need to confront. Um, as uh, in global health. And a lot of it is going to be in your generation. Um, you, you're going to unfortunately have the, the challenges of um, all of these things and hope to explore some of these things, well, really all these things in the course. Is, or is there anything in particular for COVID that you wish would have been done differently? Well, COVID is uh, a real tragedy. Yeah. It's a tragedy of governance, a tragedy of leadership. Uh, it didn't need to be what it has been. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, we need to better understand why that ha why this happened. Um, certainly it was a new virus uh, and, and we need to you know recognize that. Uh, and it brought some surprises to us as a virus. But it's, it's really, and, and we had great achievements in making very effective vaccines against it. 
Right. Uh, but but where we have failed is in governance and leadership, um, in communications, um, and we've unfortunately found ourselves wrapped up in in politics in many countries, and um, that's something we in in global health um, need to understand much better, recognize, and be prepared in the future to deal with. Um, we're still dealing with it, of course, in this country. When you look at our vaccination rates, which which compare miserably now to many countries in Europe, even in Asia, Latin America, um, it's it's just tragic that such a safe and effective vaccine is resisted uh, by so many people. Um, that's just one example of the of our failures, and we um, we need to better understand how this happened and and uh, deal with it much better in the future. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Marson, for just coming on and sharing your experiences and your insight. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would have liked to touch on? Uh, just to say that um, it's wonderful to have you and, and your fellow students uh, so committed to the field. And um, I'm hoping that all of you will be leaders where, uh, wherever your lives take you. Uh, and I hope that uh, your experience at Duke contributes along the way uh, to your success. Wow, what a beautiful way to close off such a wonderful conversation on global health challenges and issues. It was interesting to hear Dr. Merson's insight on how we could be handling COVID better just because he was present in the beginning stages of HIV AIDS and oral rehydration therapy. And he has seen the ideation of those issues and being able to parallel that with the mismanagement of COVID-19 was incredibly insightful. So I would like to thank Dr. Merson again for coming on to Global Volumes. And I hope that you also listeners enjoyed this episode, whether you learned something professionally or personally in your own journey by hearing the journey of someone else. That's what Global Volumes is about. And I would like to just invite you to subscribe to Global Volumes wherever you listen to podcasts or even on YouTube where we post a video portion of the episode just for more conversations like this, conversations um, surrounding personal and professional development and global health and storytelling. That is what we're all about. So thank you for joining today's episode and tuning into this volume and I'll see you in the next volume. Bye.